0: You're listening to Blossoming Technologist, a podcast for young professionals in tech. I'm your host, Marissa, and today we're joined by Lily Tong, a Toronto-based iOS engineer at Vice Media and the host of the podcast, Make Peas, Not Beef, a podcast about climate change, sustainability, technology, and more. It's all about deepening our relationship with ourselves. In fact, I was featured on Lily's podcast in coincidentally also episode 10, which was totally not planned, but it has been awesome collaborating with Lily. And I'm excited to share today's conversation about mobile development and the social and environmental impact of technology. We discuss why mobile is the future and also how technologists can play a part in fighting climate change. One thing to note is that there are a few moments here and there of choppy audio due to some technical difficulties. I apologize in advance and I hope it doesn't take away too much from our conversation. Without further ado, let's get started. Lily, it's so great to have you here. I would love to start with what led to your interest in the tech industry.
1: So actually, funny story. I sort of follow a similar trajectory as you. It all started with playing Neopads when I was around 13 and 14. And literally, like, I would come back from school and then I would log on to and then I would start creating web pages in HTML because Neopads had all these tutorials for teaching users how to create web pages. because I had this, like, 800-person guild. Like, in my head, I was a career woman and my full-time job was not school. It was to manage that guild after school. <laughs> so, yeah, I learned how to uh, make websites using HTML. HTML. So that really got me interested. It was quite like an intro to coding. And then when I went to university, I studied software engineering at McGill University in Montreal, that's in Canada. So the funny thing is, when I first went to college, I actually got in for the life sciences program. But, you know, after a series of daunting four hour long biology labs, I decided that was not what I had in mind for career. And instead, I took an introductory computer science course. And wow, I was completely blown away because I was like, I'm writing this program that is so much smarter than me, and it can execute all these different tasks. So I immediately switched majors into computer science. So to me, tech is exciting and versatile due to its ability to solve a wide range of problems, from fraud and spam to Netflix recommendation, to molecular quantum modeling, to online dating, to even large-scale ride-sharing like Uber. You know, the potential is limitless, and I wanted to be part of that.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I always find it so interesting to hear how people got their start in tech. And I love that you went from like Neopets to taking an introductory computer science course and then like realizing the potential of it and that leading into your career. And so right now you are an iOS engineer at Vice Media. And I'm really curious, why did you decide to pursue iOS development?
1: Actually, a funny thing is, I studied software engineering, but right out of college, I actually worked in consulting for a year. But then I quickly realized, you know, like I'm I'm not a corporate person and being dressed up in a suit to go to work every day, like that was just not my thing. So, I wanted to pivot back to software engineering and I was looking for jobs. And now I know that, you know, you can either choose between front-end development and back-end development, but I've always wanted to do mobile development because I think mobile is the future, right? If you look at statistics, over 50% of all of internet's traffic is now on mobile. And there's a saying that goes, if your website is not mobile-friendly, it's pretty much dead. And like Google is going to rank you very low in the search index. So that's when I really wanted to become part of this mobile movement and, and learn the latest technologies because mobile is probably the most relevant platform. And this is how people consume data nowadays.
0: It's so wild that mobile is now the thing because like even like 20 years ago, like smartphones, did they even exist back then? (laughs) Uh, So like, how did you actually start in iOS development? Did you take a course or um, like find a job right away in it?
1: Yeah, great question. Here's the truth. I never learned iOS development in school. Like in school, they taught us, you know, Java, Python, like the basics. But iOS, you use Objective-C and Swift, right? Like those are the programming languages you use. So that was never taught in school. So I actually took some Udemy courses. It's funny how I got a degree in software engineering, but then I took a Udemy bootcamp <laughs> in iOS development. And then with that, I sort of applied for uh, jobs in iOS. But I have to say, so how it works for most companies is you apply for a generalist software engineering position. And then someone from the tech department, like an engineering manager will interview you, and they will interview you for like algorithms, data structures, you go through the standardized software engineer interview. And then once you pass that, they give you the choice of specialization. So in my case, I said, please specifically put me on the mobile team, I, I want to learn mobile development. So once I passed the generalist software engineer interview, uh, luckily enough, it was the VP of engineering at the startup at, at Tulip, that's where i first worked as an iOS developer, interviewed me, and he really liked me. And to this day, I thank Colin because this guy allowed me to make a career transition from working as, as an unhappy consultant to um, a very satisfied iOS developer.
0: That's incredible. I I feel like it's often people have like a person who just gives them a chance or believes in them. And that leads to all these different avenues and like, look at you now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. I agree. Like there are a few pivotal moments in your life. And if you miss those opportunities, then you miss it forever. Well, I'm sure more opportunities will come by, but you got to, you got to be able to recognize it and seize it.
0: Yeah. So like what makes mobile development unique compared to say web development?
1: So, you know, obviously, if you look at a phone, the screen is a lot smaller than a laptop, right? There's a lot of things you can fit into on a laptop screen that you cannot with mobile. So the, the UI and UX experience, the, the process of designing the mobile experience is completely different from laptops. With web development, you're using a keyboard and you're using a mouse to navigate on a website, right, with mobile. Users, they're going to scroll using their fingers. It's all about leveraging the gestures that are built in with the mobile device and also interacting with your phone's operating system, like leveraging push notifications, for example, to push out the latest content to your users. And how does that tie in with your application? So you got to understand the application lifecycle because at any point your application could be given the boot. Like if there's not enough RAM, the operating system will like force your app to quit. So there are a lot of special behaviors that just basically don't apply to web development that you have to consider when you're developing apps for mobile. But another thing is, you know, other than like big small screen is the most obvious. There are a lot of other features like you know device rotation, for example, also like sound effects. Also mobile delivers you information in a quicker manner. So think about all the apps that you have on your phone, right? You just tap it open and then you can immediately start consuming information. Whereas on a website, you have to first type, I don't know, like www.amazon.com and then you type in the search bar. Whereas mobile, it's designed in a way that makes information easy and quick to find so that you don't have to jump through as many hoops to get to where you want to be. That's the whole idea behind mobile design.
0: Oh, that's so cool because I'm i like deep in web development right now mm-hmm. and hearing about the difference between that and mobile development is just so cool. Like so much thought has to go into the user experience and how people are interacting with your application and the device and all those unique constraints. It's fascinating i love it
1: <laughs> totally oh and to add on to that like a really fun fact so uh my product manager he actually spends a significant amount of time like reading our app reviews in the app store you know like there are people who give you five stars and then there are people who give you like one star and go like oh this app is amazing or this app is shit and we actually look through you know all the user feedbacks on why they said this app is shit or is like, this is amazing. And we actually go through each and every one of those comments. And based on their suggestions, we sort of tweak our user experience because of the built in feedback system. And because Apple has a very stringent review process for your app, it's not like a website, you can just put anything out there, right? You have to go through like an app store review process, someone like physically checks your app to make sure it's okay, and that you're a legit organization. So I would say there's actually a lot more scrutiny for mobile development.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I'm even thinking like mobile development, you do have to build for like specific screen sizes, stuff like that. And sometimes the stuff I do for web development, you kind of have to consider mobile devices and laptops. Like obviously we like to build for laptops and desktops mostly, but if people are viewing your website on their phone, like if it's not good, they're just not going to go on your website on the phone. Exactly. That's right. (laughs) That's
1: right. Because like if your website is hard to navigate on a phone or like your buttons are too small, they're not going to do that. Like there was a whole study done on how Uber sort of redesigned their mobile experience because the button that allows you to call for a taxi used to be at the top. And now the button to call for a cab is all the way at the bottom because a user experience researcher actually found out that where our thumb is positioned, the phone is closer to the bottom of the screen. Right. So it doesn't make sense to put the most important button at the top of the screen. So you see like small details like that matters in mobile development.
0: Wow. Do you ever get to participate in these like user research sessions? Personally,
1: I cannot take part in the design. However, I did sit in on, it was very, very interesting. So we did a series of user research sessions where I was basically like anonymously observing an end user using the app that we designed. And it's so funny because 99% of the features we built were not even used. Like that person str- went straight to the to the search bar. I'm like, whoa, like, because as a developer, I would not use it the same way that, you know, someone completely new to the app would use. So it was so interesting to see like, wow, so this is how users actually use the app I built. It's not the way I intended it. They actually use perhaps only 1% of the features I built. You know, it's, it's interesting.
0: So what would you say is your favorite part of being a mobile developer?
1: Yeah, so I think the most rewarding aspect is you get immediate feedback because I can just hit the compile button and I immediately see on the screen what it is that I am building. Whereas if you're a back-end developer, you know, you solve more like complex scaling challenges with databases and API, but you don't get to see that. And to be able to see what I am building and, and to know that there are millions of people using this app, using it to consume information, to stream videos, to get news. I think that is incredibly rewarding.
0: Yeah. And that's how it kind of ties into like mobile being the future. So like, why do you think mobile is the future?
1: (laughs) As the world becomes more and more connected, people are always on the go. They're on the move, right? You're on the subway. You're, you're at the bus stop. It doesn't make sense for you to carry a laptop with you everywhere you go right because we need information instantly so think about all these people who are browsing like instagram and watching youtube videos consuming news you know sending and receiving emails like everything everything is done on mobile like i have a friend who i just talked to recently and he was featured on my podcast he's like i do not have a laptop i only have a phone What? yeah he doesn't have a laptop he only has a phone i'm like like see i'm a mobile developer but i need a laptop he is an extreme example of someone who doesn't even use a laptop. So I was just shocked.
0: People like that exist. Wow. I definitely think mobile's the future. That's so crazy to me because I'm definitely someone who hates doing things on my phone. I will do laptop over phone like any right? day. <laughs> Same. And I, I love you're talking about how like people don't need to have the refrigerators connected to the internet, stuff like that. And you talked about this in your episode of your podcast. Your podcast is called Make Peas, Not Beef. And I think it was episode four. In that episode, you talk about how technology can both hurt the environment and help solve climate change. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about this double-edged sword?
1: Yeah, for sure. And just to clarify, like, yes, I do have a podcast called Make Peas, Not Beef, and P spelled P E A S, the pun is intended. But yes, in episode four, I talk about how climate change can. Partially be solved by technology, but then technology also complicates the problem. That's right; it is a double-edged sword. There's different kinds of technologies, right? So, um, why don't we break it down? So, let's first take a look at digital and software technology. Picture the internet, you know, data centers, computers, electronic devices, kind of things like everything that has to do with digital connection. That's a big aspect of tech right now. So, I think a big benefit, like how it can benefit the environment, if you think about it, digital communication actually leads to. De- materialization, which means we need less stuff. So for example, we need less paper books and resumes and letters and documents to be printed now because we can access that information on our hard drive. And in some cases, we also require less air travel for meetings and conferences that usually require bringing people from different countries. And because we now have access to Zoom, for example, so teleconferencing is an option. You don't have to fly this person out to Europe and then come back the next day. As you guys may or may not know, air travel produces a lot of emissions. So that's number one, dematerialization. But secondly, with digital technology, what it's really good at doing is resource optimization. And in particular, you know, data science machine learning can help predict and analyze energy usage patterns. So for example, if a city is using a smart grid to supply its electricity to millions of households, then it can scale up or down during peak times and off hours, you know, as opposed to supplying just a constant throughput, which is what most cities are currently doing. And this is in immensely wasteful. Just imagine turning on the tap in your kitchen sink all the time, even though you aren't doing the dishes. That's basically what we're doing with electricity right now. We just supply a constant amount as if all the lights in every single device in every household needs to be turned on. But imagine if you had a smart grid that can scale up or down based on like, there's no one in this house. So stop sending electricity to that house. That's where digital technology can sort of make the dumb system smart and dynamically tweak the energy supply. And that will increase the energy efficiency. And the last thing that digital technology can do is that it can facilitate a circular and sharing economy. So think about digital platforms like Uber and Airbnb and other resource sharing platforms that are made possible because we have the internet and mobile technology and these apps, right? That allow, you know, strangers to connect with one another, share their households, share their cars. So that means we need less cars, less houses. So that allows us to kind of share resources and increase resource utilization. That's just digital technology and it's, it's one part of technology. But then there's a whole other branch of technology called clean technology. So um, a lot of people might not know what clean technology encompasses. Like I addressed in my episode, when I say clean tech, people immediately think of solar and wind and nuclear energy, like renewable energy. But clean tech is so, so, so much more than just energy, right? I'm talking about everything from electric cars to meat, plant-based alternatives to carbon capture and storage, even like data analytics prediction firms that sort of help forecast like climate change and where the world is going, like all of that. that falls under the umbrella of clean tech. Clean technology is basically any kind of technology that can help mitigate, reverse, reduce, or slow down climate change. So it doesn't have to be exactly within the energy sector. It can be anything from transportation to agriculture, to telecommunications, to even possibly social media. As long as it changes, it modifies a part of our current process. You know, it could be the way we bank, the way we shop, the way we market things. If, if you see anything about that process that can be improved and you make a service or product that improves that, then technically you can call yourself clean tech. That's what clean tech is. But I'm going to briefly talk about in what cases does technology hurt the environment? So, yes, there are negative impacts and downsides. Eighty percent of Internet traffic actually comes from video content because and especially now in quarantine Everyone is probably at home watching Netflix. I don't know what's hot right now, like Bridgerton. That was like number one in my country. So everyone is like, you know, cooped up at home watching YouTube videos and Netflix. And video content in general is the most energy intensive out of anything you can possibly do on the internet. Maybe other than gaming, like live gaming, that is extremely energy intensive too.
0: Could you kind of break down what you mean by like, why is that energy intensive?
1: For sure. So think about it, right? When you're watching a video, like what is a video consisted of? A video is just a stream of images, right? Like there's probably like 24 to 25 frames per second. So if you guys have ever seen a GIF, what is a GIF? A GIF is just a sequence of images animated together, right? So that's basically a video, except the video is like 100 times longer than a GIF. So think about it. There's 24 frames per second. And then let's say you're watching this hour-long Joe Rogan interview on YouTube. Like, I don't know how many frames that is, probably in the millions. And then each frame is an image, right? So you got to encode that information in binary. So each image is what? Like maybe 50 to 500 bias depending on the resolution of the screen so if you think about it that that is a lot of information that has to be encoded in a video and usually like a video can range anywhere from like one gig all the way to a thousand depending on the length of your video and the resolution so it is extremely not only energy intensive, but also resource intensive, but it also like takes up a lot of space in the cloud. And every time you stream that video, you got to download it. Like the data, like a server has got to supply that information to you through a content delivery network. Wherever you are in the world, you got to download that information from a server that is hosting a copy of the video. And then that downloads to your computer and then you watch it and you stream it. That is why video content, whereas as opposed to a website, most websites are probably just text-based. So you're just scrolling through
0: text. You don't have to download as much information from a server. It's so interesting to think about that though, because it's it's just such a normal part of life to like watch a video or look on a website. You never think about like, oh yes, like your laptop is plugged in and that's using energy. And that energy could be wind, but it could be gas or it could be oil or whatever it might be. And like also the content that you're actually downloading, like that has to come from somewhere else. And that's hosted in another, like it's, it's this whole spiral of like energy is being used constantly by all these devices we're using.
1: Absolutely. And, and to your point, like we're not conscious, but everything we do, everything we do in this life has a carbon footprint, right? Like, even a Google search produces 0.2 grams of carbon dioxide. And the crazy thing is, like, annually, the global emissions from Google searches alone is about 3.4 million cars. Just imagine, like, what else? What about emails? What about videos? Like, I don't, I don't even want to start thinking about it. I'm quoting the statistic from a wonderful book I read written by Tatiana Schlossberg called Inconspicuous Consumption. And I believe she's the granddaughter of JFK, but now she's an environmental journalist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's such a fun fact. <laughs> but I think everyone should check out that episode of your podcast because you broke this down even further. I was literally awestruck It just like, <laughs> wow, like everything, like you even talked about how like... One thing you can do to reduce your carbon footprint is deleting old emails. And I am so guilty of keeping every email. And I was like, oh, man, I feel so guilty now of my like thousands of emails I have Same. on my account. It
1: has to be stored somewhere on the server. And as long as that server is running 24-7 posting that information, that's going to consume energy. Totally.
0: It's so crazy. So we talked a little bit about what people in general can do about their negative impact with the technology they use. But how can technologists who are building this technology be more careful about this negative impact?
1: I love this question because contrary to popular belief, you don't have to be an environmentalist to have an impact on the planet. <laughs> no matter what your job is, you know, you will have a direct or indirect Impact on climate change with the work you do. So, for example, let's say you're a software engineer, you're a software developer working for a startup or company, whatever. I want you to think about code efficiency. And I want you to think about whether or not the way you've architected the software is energy efficient. And also for people like me who hit compile every other second, like, is that really necessary? I just wrote one line of code and now I'm just going to recompile it again. Because every time you compile, that's going to tie up the CPU's resources. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's probably minuscule. Imagine if all the software developers in the world wrote code like that. The code is extremely long and not efficient, compiled like every other line. I think for software engineers, definitely think about code efficiency and how you design your software in a way that it consumes less energy. And, you know, if you're a hardware engineer, then... For sure, you're a lot more familiar with just in general energy and CPU usage. and maybe also the choice of, you know, materials for semiconductors. Or if you're a material, chemical, sieve, or a mechanical engineer, then you have a more direct relationship with like material extraction, usage, disposal, and you have a better understanding of the material life cycle, right? So think about, you know, what kind of materials are you choosing to build this bridge, to build this robot? And like all of these things should be taken into consideration and I'll give you an example like Tesla right they are probably the biggest manufacturer of electric vehicles right now or, or the most well-known and they employ like a wide range of technologists everything from software to hardware to material engineers probably to also environmental engineers and now they're sourcing their own lithium for their batteries like probably also material engineers and mining engineers so that's a wide spectrum of people working the project and of course there's a pun- a bunch of product designers and project managers and every step along that chain someone can do something to minimize the environmental damage um, and i'm sure tesla's big on that because that's that's the whole mission of the company but what people don't often realize is that their job actually has an environmental impact so i'll, I'll quote this really interesting study that i read of how designers, like web designers, can make a huge difference in CO2 emissions just by changing a tiny feature on YouTube. I'll give an example, right? So suppose you're, you're watching YouTube in, in a Google Chrome tab. It's a music video, but you're not watching the video. You just want to listen to the music. So then you open a new tab, and then you go do something else. But then the YouTube video is still playing in a background tab. Now that is extremely energy intensive. However, if the web designer just made a small change and switched the mode from video to audio only when you're streaming it on a background tab, that will cut down CO2 emissions drastically.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I have never thought about that, but I actually thought you were going to say, you know, how like YouTube auto plays the next video. And I feel like that's also very energy intensive because if you're not like paying attention, it downloads that video so that you can watch it. And then you realize once it starts that you don't want to watch that video So I kind of want to dig in a little bit more about climate change, because I know you're extremely passionate about it. I'm curious, why do you think climate change is the biggest problem in the world right now?
1: That's a big question, an extremely important one. So I think there's an age old myth that climate activists are all like environmentalists and tree huggers, that myth is over. So I want to address the difference between environmentalism and climate activism. So growing up, I was an environmentalist, like I was all about protecting the environment, planting trees, saving water. But at this point, my environmentalism has sort of evolved into full-fledged climate activism because now it's no longer about protecting the environment. I am literally fighting against a crisis because humans have been brought to the brink of extinction. And that's that's why this issue is important. It's because our survival is in question right now. It's no longer just about protecting the environment for the future generation. Right now we're at a stage for the first time in history where whether or not we have a future Is highly debatable. You see the difference. It's not about preserving the future or preserving the planet for the future. It's about, do we even have a future? Because I'm not even sure. I cannot say that with confidence right now. So climate is a truly multifaceted and global issue. This is no longer just a problem for environmentalists. This is a global issue that everyone needs to pay attention to. And I mean, absolutely everyone from policymakers to entrepreneurs, to tech professionals, to social scientists, to economists, to doctors, lawyers, actors, musicians. Everyone needs to focus on it because everyone can take part in it because we as humanity, are being confronted by this massive, enormous challenge, possibly an existential barrier, one that we have never encountered before. And it is coming our way so, so, so fast, which is why I launched my podcast, because most people don't even realize the severity of the problem. But I personally have read so many books throughout my life on climate change. And of course, naturally being an environmentalist at a young age, so it it just evolved into that. But we have Ten years left to act before the planet irreversibly becomes uninhabitable by humans, possibly by 2050. The bugs and bacteria, they, they will be fine. <laughs> we will perish. <laughs> we will perish. But you know, most people don't realize the scale of the problem, and that is why I am so worried. But at the same time, I am you know also optimistic because you know through your podcast, I am spreading the word, and with what I'm doing and with my friends and every guest I bring on to the show, anything ranging from like CEOs to entrepreneurs to rappers, they all bring a different angle to climate change and climate justice. And it's a lot of fun conversations. So I really hope to spread the word in that way.
0: Yeah. And when you mention all the roles that people have, like policymakers need to care about this, musicians need to care, economists need to care, all that. Deep down, like we're all just humans and we need to care because we live on the earth and that is in question. Like (laughs) it's like the most important thing in our lives and people don't realize it's a problem. So I, I love what you're doing and your podcast is incredible. And you mentioned, you have read a bunch of books. Do you have any books to recommend to people who maybe are interested in learning more about climate change? Yes, yes.
1: Oh, that's a great question. I don't want to overwhelm people. So I would start maybe start with Naomi Klein's On Fire, or This Changes Everything. That's one of her older books that talk about climate change, but anything written by Naomi Klein, she sort of tackles climate from both a scientific, but also social justice perspective. And she will lay it out for you how climate change directly is tied to social inequality, gender inequality, and also racial inequality. And you really get to see it from so many different lenses, how climate is literally tied to every single problem in the world. And it's a multiplier that's only going to make it worse. It's only going to make conflicts and wars more frequent. It's only going to make inequality even more egregious. So this is why we need to address this issue right now, because no matter what cause you care about, it's probably only going to be worsened by climate change.
0: Oh, yes. (laughs) So since this podcast is mostly for technologists, what can technologists do right now to help fight against climate change?
1: Of course. And I'm so happy to speak to an audience who are so interested in technology because I think technology is one of the biggest sectors that that can have an impact on climate change. So mark these words, climate tech will become the fastest growing industry to be ever witnessed in human history. Because if we don't do this now, we are screwed forever. (laughs) Like this is not a drill, guys. We got to do this now. This is in the 1980s when Al Gore first proposed to Congress, like, hey, I think climate change is a thing. Like, we don't have another 30 years to figure things out now. It's it's really now or never. That's how serious it is. So I have an upcoming episode, actually, on my podcast called Two Ex-Google Engineers Went Viral for Quitting Google to Found the Climate Nonprofit Called Working Climate. So one of the Google engineers wrote... Uh, a resignation letter to his boss saying that I'm quitting Google and I'm going to work on climate. And that letter blew up on LinkedIn with more than like half a million likes (laughs) because he really poured his heart out as to why he is making that pivot to a career in climate. But of course, that's a more extreme example. You don't have to quit your job in order to work on climate, right? You can volunteer in your spare time, but keep this in mind, no matter what your job is, you can contribute to climate action. Because like I said, everything you do has a carbon footprint. Everything you do has an environmental impact, right? And climate change at this point is not just an environmental issue. It is literally a systemic, a global issue impacting everything from environment to economy, to equality, to wars and conflict. But of course, technology is a big part of it. No matter what your job is, you can contribute to climate action either directly through your job or indirectly outside of work. So remember that climate change is no longer just an environmental issue, right? This is literally a systemic global issue impacting everything from the environment to the economy, to equality, to wars and conflicts in the future, to technology, to literally like the fate of humanity is in question right now. So anything you can do to help volunteer would be great. So for, for software developers who are wondering like, oh my God, like this issue is so important. I really want to work on it. Well, I really suggest, well, you look into this organization called Work on Climate that the two ex-googlers have found. Because this is an organization that actually brings in people all across, not only the tech sector, although that is where it's most popular right now because the, the two people are from Google. So like they brought a lot of people from the community to this nonprofit. But it's basically brings... All the talents across the world to solve climate change together. And there's a Slack channel for that. And there's so many different, like different kinds of projects going on right now, with like, you know, forestry and carbon offset. So a lot of software developers from like maybe Google, Facebook, all these esteemed tech companies are volunteering a lot of their free time to work on these climate-related projects. So just because your work does not directly involve climate doesn't mean you cannot you know use those same skill sets that you would normally apply to work and work on a nonprofit gig in your spare time and the other thing is like if you're an engineer at a company, you're like, what can I do? I really want you to look at the processes that are in place at your company, whether it's in the way that you go about project management or the way just organizational operations. And if you see anything that you can optimize or bring up to your manager, you should have that talk with your organization. You should show them that you're concerned. You should stand for climate. And and I'm, I'm sure in most cases, the organization would be more than happy to hear your feedbacks. So, Technology in itself is not the end all be all solution to climate. But I think the key takeaway for technologists is to focus on energy efficiency and simplifying processes, no matter what you're working on.
0: Yeah, and it's really incredible how like technology is just a tool to use to fight for causes like this. You're so passionate about climate change, and you have this background in technology where like now you are educating others about what their skills and technology can enable them to do to help solve this crisis and really amplify how how important it is. I have one more question about climate change, and then I kind of want to jump into your podcast. So like, what are some companies currently doing to fight climate change?
1: This is my favorite question. I love talking about positive (laughs) examples that we all need more of in this world okay let me get started the most obvious one is obviously tesla right like elon musk his entire life is sort of like revolved around like preventing humanity (laughs) from collapsing from an existential crisis so his entire mission through everything that he does with spacex to tesla with solar city to hyperloop is to basically save humanity from a climate catastrophe and then he's also got a plan b he's like well like in case our planet goes to shit well that's why i'm building SpaceX. we're all (laughs) going to mars (laughs) he's doing a lot of work not only in electric vehicles that's what he's known for but he's also doing a lot of work in aerospace research as well as um solar energy research so the reason why he and his brother founded solar city that's his other startup yeah this guy he is like the ceo of five startups i don't know how he spends his time but his end goal was to have set up these like free solar charging stations for all tesla cars and then beyond meat is another they're a really big emerging company. So people are confused because they're like, wait, why is this climate technology? Oh, yeah, 100% it is because it is a meat alternative company. And if you didn't know this... You should go listen to my podcast. I explain it. But cattle consumption alone, I think, contributes to like 10, 10 to 15% of global emissions just from uh, burps, because all that methane is being trapped in the atmosphere and that sets off a cycle where more and more greenhouse gases are trapped. And that's, you know, accelerating, melting of the ice caps, of course, as you might know. So any meat or dairy alternative company any solar, wind, nuclear fusion, renewable energy company, any of these clean tech companies, and even clean tech venture capitals, like investors who are investing in clean tech, like they are all actively doing something about climate change. And there are more and more clean tech venture capitals in, in Silicon Valley because I hear all these podcasts talking about like all of the biggest investors right now are betting their money on sustainable clean tech. It's coming. So Stripe is this very, very quickly growing probably one of the biggest fintech startups in Silicon Valley. And the fantastic thing is that the, the CEO of the company, he is extremely passionate about climate. So he actually started a climate initiative called Stripe Climate that actually sets up like a couple of million dollars every year to just invest in climate technology and projects. And the funny thing is their whole recruiting team, I just saw like they started posting out positions related to climate. At first I was really confused. I'm like, wait, I thought you were a fintech starter. Why am I seeing all these positions for like climate, like project manager? Like they're actually growing a whole department because I think the head of the company is really determined to tackle this challenge. And Stripe is like probably one of the Biggest, biggest leading companies in Silicon Valley in the fintech space. So the fact that they did this just made me so happy. But not just Stripe, right? Like even Google, Google's is more like an undersold victory. But Google actually did a lot to offset all the emissions they have ever put out. And actually, by 2018, Google became 100% renewable powered. So think about it, Google's a huge company, right? Think about all the data centers they own, like all these Google searches that they have to handle every day, all these servers hosting content for for the company globally to be 100% renewable, that is a tremendous undertaking. But I know, Google is committed, and two people are so committed. In fact, they quit Google. <laughs> <to founder. laughs> like, and from what I've heard from them, you'll hear in my episode. But apparently, within Google, there's like a hundred different climate projects that Google engineers are just dedicating their spare time to work on. Yeah, and then there's Jeff Bezos from Amazon, which announced that he was launching a ten billion dollar Earth Fund to solely be dedicated to climate technology. So I have hope because I definitely see a move in in Silicon Valley. Like so many people care about the planet and all these CEOs are like, well, shit, like if the planet is going through shit, that means our business will no longer exist anymore. So they're really aggressively (laughs) doing something about it now. That's the
0: motivation.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like, oh, my God, we're not going to make money anymore. We better fix this now.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Hey, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's so cool to hear these companies doing stuff for that. I know before we were talking about all these things, like even doing a Google search, like that has a negative impact, which it still does, but at least we know that it's 100% renewably powered. This is so awesome. I want to talk a little bit more about your podcast in case people are not yet convinced that they need to listen. I love your enthusiasm for it. And I love how you are so solutions focused on your podcast. You're really thinking about the ways that you can impact the world, educate people about technology, about climate change, and you decide to take matters into your own hands by launching it. So I am interested in knowing how did your interest in both technology and climate contribute to creating your podcast, Make Peas, Not Beef?
1: Talking about how I created my podcast. Well, I've always wanted to be a podcaster, but I'm like, oh, like that was kind of like a pie of dream. I don't actually want to action on that. It's so much work. (laughs) Right. But then here's the thing. (laughs) Fate works in mysterious ways because 2019, December, that was when I was wrapping up my um, application for Harvard's master's program. I wanted to study climate tech and policy. So I was so ready to like quit my job and go to Harvard and like pack up on the stuff and then pivot to a career in climate. So and the funny thing was, I actually I actually got into Harvard's um, master's program. So I got the acceptance letter in 2020, March, like right when the pandemic started. The admissions officer told me, "What well, you're not going because the next semester is going to be virtual because that's how bad the pandemic was." You know what? At the bottom of my heart, I'm like, "There's, there's no way in hell I'm going to wait for two years to work on climate. I want to work on this now," and I didn't want to wait. And you know, it's funny because in the past, right? Remember that VP that I told you about who gave me that opportunity that allowed me to transition to an iOS software engineer and you said, you know, there are critical people in your lives who give you this opportunity that allows you to take that leap of faith. And in this case, I realized this time around that person is me. It's no one else but myself. And I am going to create that opportunity for myself because I want this so badly now. So at some point you're passion sort of you know outweigh your inaction and your hesitation and all the fears that's holding you back because if this is a problem I truly care about so much then what is really holding me back from doing this so yeah so I took a chance on myself and then I launched a podcast I am committed to growing this not only because I see this as my brand and identity but more importantly I really want to do everything I can to to save humanity before it's too late
0: you said, I am going to create this opportunity for myself. <laughs> Ooh, I, oh, I got like chills. So Aww. good. I'm so excited. And maybe you don't have that many listeners now, but you will. What kinds of topics do you cover in your podcast?
1: So my podcast is called Make Peace Not Beef. So I actually cover everything from like climate change, to technology, to philosophy, to mental health, to pop culture, and then also veganism, because I am a vegan. So climate is the key focus it's the underlying theme that kind of ties everything together. But I deliberately n- not include like climate or sustainability in the podcast name. And I wanted to keep it lighthearted, because I didn't want to preach to a climate choir, right? Like if If my podcast was called, like, Save the Earth or something, then only environmentalists are going to find my podcast and listen to it, which is why I've actually decided since the inception to actually expand the scope of the topics I cover. But the common theme for each is climate change. So for example, in future episodes, I'm actually going to bring on one of my close friends. He's actually a rapper. And in that episode, we're going to talk about like racial injustice and also Black Lives Matter and also climate justice and kind of from a very different artistic lens, like how climate change is sort of tied to all these other issues that people don't normally associate climate change with. And I might even do a rap freestyle on that episode. So I'm really trying to be creative here. (laughs) oh my gosh I'm so excited oh thanks yeah I'm crazy too many ideas
0: yeah that's amazing definitely people need to check it out I will link to it in the show notes so people can just click on it and go to your podcast so let's start wrapping up I have a few fun questions that are more like fast paced what is one skill that you're currently working on
1: podcasting
0: Learning all the different things.
1: Oh, it's, podcasting is just like this umbrella word for video editing, content development, social media, it's literally everything.
0: It's like a whole course, basically.
1: Oh, it <laughs> is. It's a full-time job, guys.
0: What is something absurd that you love doing?
1: <laughs> Since the quarantine, I've been trying very hard to impersonate Ariana Grande's singing voice. <laughs> but at this point, I sound closer to Mac Miller.
0: Well, I look forward to a podcast episode where you finally get to do it. Oh, wow.
1: That's going to take, that's going to take longer than for me to solve climate change, but thanks.
0: (laughs) In a year, (laughs) something like that. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Oh God. Yeah. I'll be famous on TikTok.
0: Another question. What is something that you can't live without?
1: Oh, definitely water. (laughs) No climate pun intended. Also cilantro. I add cilantro to everything, like fried rice, noodles, like dips. My mom thinks I'm crazy because she's like, she hates cilantro. So she's like, you're not my daughter. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so one last question. What is one final piece of advice to leave with our listeners?
1: Oh, of course it has to be make peace, not beef, (laughs) literally. But what I mean by that is, you know, making peace, with yourself, with the ones around you, with the animals and the planet. And I really hope that everybody can eventually reach that internal alignment where they can help themselves fulfill their own goals, but at the same time also help them and help the ones around them and sort of empower others as they walk through life and to make the world a better place than when they came into this world.
0: Such a wonderful, positive (laughs) message to leave on. Thank you so much, Lily, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was amazing talking to you.
1: Thank you so much, Marissa, for the opportunity. I absolutely love your podcast and it's been nothing but a pleasure to be featured as a guest.
0: For me, this podcast was eye-opening into the different ways I can help fight climate change as a technologist with things as simple as deleting emails to reduce my carbon footprint. I also found it fascinating to hear about all the companies that are making a difference with climate change. If you want to hear more from Lily, make sure to check out her podcast, Make Peas, Not Beef, wherever you're listening to this one. Thanks for listening and have a great day.